0: Well, today I have an important question for you. Some of you here, in fact, I trust most of you would call yourself a Christian, but the question I have is why? Why are you a Christian? What are you actually getting out of that right now? let me ask, why are you here this morning? Whether you're here in the sanctuary, you're downstairs, or you're watching online, why are you doing this right now? There's a lot of other things you could be doing with your time. Why are you here? You don't have to be here. Wouldn't you rather sleep in on your Sunday morning? It's a day off. Now, you might give me a couple reasons why you are here on a Sunday. You might say, well, pastor, uh, my mom and my dad, they always brought me to church. They told me it was a good thing to come to church. So I'm here because of my mom or my dad. Maybe it's tradition and you've been raised, oh, going to church is what you do. It's what I'm supposed to do. Or maybe you're just used to it. I'm, I go to church. It's what I do on a Sunday morning. Now, maybe you're a good Christian or a Christian who who knows your Bible, and you might say, well, I'm here because I believe in Jesus. But again, I have to ask you, why do you stick with him? What is it that makes it worth it to believe in Jesus? I'm sure I wouldn't have to look far to see something in your life, some type of brokenness or bitterness, maybe some hurt, some sickness, some suffering that you're experiencing, or maybe death of a loved one you know, from my perspective, it looks like none of your lives are perfect. So what is it about following Jesus? Why would you do that? Why would you pursue a life of knowing Jesus Christ? Because the truth is, life is often bitter, and it's often hard. It's often full of sin and pain and death. But the hope that we have as Christians, the hope that we have knowing God, is that God shows himself faithful. He shows faithful love. So today we're going to begin exploring the book of Ruth. This is a short story that's set in ancient Israel, and it's talking about how God's love can be seen even in a broken world. In the very first chapter, we're going to see what happens when the bitterness of life is overcome by our faithful God. So before we talk about it, though, Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time in your word we have this morning. I pray, God, that you would show us through this story in the book of Ruth how you are always faithful even when life is bitter and hard. May we persevere knowing that you are in control and that you are good and that we can rest in your faithfulness and love. Lead us then, God, to faithfully choose you, to choose a relationship with you, to choose to embrace knowing you and living for you every day. Thank you that we can do this because of the person that Ruth is, the book is looking forward to, the person of your son, Jesus Christ, descendant of that woman and the one who we are saved by. God, I pray that we would be focused on him and we see our lives in reference to what he has done for us. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Now, if you're normally here at Yeshua, you know I like to have us read the Scripture. It's a little longer chapter, so what I'm going to do is kind of read it in sections as we go through it rather than reading it all together at once. The first thing we're going to see here in Ruth chapter 1 is that when life is bitter, when our life is bitter, God is faithful. When life is bitter, God is faithful. I'm going to start by reading the first five verses of Ruth chapter 1. You can follow along in the Bible you're using. You can look it up. We'll also put it up here on the screens behind me. So I'm reading from Ruth chapter 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I'm going to start with the first five verses. Chapter 1 verse 1 says, "...in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons... The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So, this book that's going to be a book of love and joy, I promise you, does not start off that way at all. In fact, we're introduced to that in the very first words. It says that this story is set in the days when the judges ruled, when they governed, when they judged Israel. The time of the judges was a time defined by this verse right here. This is the last verse in the book of Judges in the Bible. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people did not have one goal they were seeking out. Everybody just did whatever they wanted. And the result of that was a lot of pain, suffering, and death. The people of Israel were regularly oppressed by enemies. They were so weak and scattered that other countries would come in and attack, take their land, take their food, kill them. And when these oppressors came, the people would struggle. They would suffer. They would say, God, help us. And God would raise up a deliverer known as a judge, normally a military leader. So this story is set during this time and that all these other countries are coming and attacking God's people. It's not a good time to live in Israel. When is it? Probably sometime around 1100 B.C., give or take 100, 200 years. Our story is based on a family that lives in the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem. In the Hebrew, this word means house of bread or food. It's this little small town in Judah, the house of bread, the house of food. But we're told that there is a famine in the land. There is no food. There is no bread in the house of food. Now, this famine is probably from a drought, but as God's people were rebelling against him, as they weren't living the way God had them lived, he was also sending famine and judgment on his people. It was a warning light to him. It was saying, you're not worshiping me. You're disregarding what I'm saying. I'm sending this famine so you can return and come back to me, to a right relationship with me. And some did, but many did not during this time. And it seems that this man Elimelech was one of those because he goes, he sojourns, he moves away to another country, the country of Moab, where he can live as a resident alien, a refugee. And the text doesn't tell us why he's doing this, but it seems that he's turning his back on God. God had given his people a promised land, but this man Elimelech says, no, I'm going to go over here. We're not having food here. So instead of calling out to God, I'm going to take my family where I can provide for them. And it seems like he meant this to be a semi-permanent move. It says he sojourns there, and then they remain there. They live there. They settled down in the land of Moab. And Moab wasn't very far from Israel. It's southeast across the Dead Sea. But this was a people where, that were God's enemies. They were not friends of the Israelites. Even in the book of Judges, they're enemies of God's people. If you remember the book of Judges, if you've ever read it or heard of it, there's one a judge named Ehud, and he has to go sneak into a king's palace and stab him. Well, that king was the king of the Moabites. So the Moabites are, were attacking Israel. There were people, their uh, civilization came from an incestuous relationship. It was not a place God's people wanted to be. But that's where this family goes. And we're given their names, Elimelech, his wife Naomi, their sons Malon and Chilion. And then we're given their clan, their city, and their tribal territory, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Just saying it's one little tiny people in this one place. Of course, we learn later that Jesus is also descendant from those people. But for now, we're with this family that's left the promised land and is settled in Moab, remaining there. And what's tragic about that is Elimelech's name, a translation for it, is God is king. And so this man, whose very name is God, is king, seems to be turning his back on God to go to this other place. His son's names uh, are very close to the words for sick and frail in Hebrew, which is kind of setting up what's going to happen to them. All three of these men will die in Moab. And we have to also think about that as kind of the ultimate Old Testament form of punishment, is to die in a foreign land. Now we don't quite think about death and where we die the same way today, but in that time in the ancient world, if you lived a good life, people would say you were able to die in peace in your land, in your property, among your family. And so if you died in a foreign country, then said you weren't living in peace, that something wrong had happened. Now that's not 100% absolutely true, but that's what people expected. And when someone would read this book, they would think, oh, Well, they must not have been living for the Lord if they died and were buried in a foreign land. So Elimelech dies, but then his sons take Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah. We learn later that Ruth married Malan and Orpah married Chilion or Killian. Orpah's name means someone who turns the neck, and so we'll learn that she kind of turns away from God in a little bit later, but Ruth means refreshment, and she's definitely a refreshing personality in this book. Now, God's people have gone to this other land, this family, and while they're there, their sons have married Moabite wives. Uh, There was nothing really against this in God's law. They could have done this. There was nothing saying they couldn't, but it was very discouraged. First of all, the Moabites didn't worship the God of the Hebrews and the Israelites. They worshiped one God. The Moabites worshiped many gods, particularly a God called Chemosh. Also, the Moabites had led God's people into sin the Israelites, hundreds of years before, were traveling through the wilderness. When they came to Moab, the Moabites led them away from worshiping God. And because of that, Moabite men were excluded from worshiping in God's tabernacle or temple for 10 generations. So it's not the best choice of wives for these men. And we see this suffering continue when we read that they lived there about 10 years, and we don't read about any children. Now, I don't want to overstate this, but in Old Testament times, the sign of God's blessing on relationship was that children came from it. And so can you imagine the brokenness of this barrenness here? That both of these couples were unable to have a child for the 10 years that they were together. And then, to top that all off, then these two sons die. And so this woman, Naomi, came with her family, her husband and her sons, to Moab, and now she is left alone. No home, no husband, Both of her children are gone. I can't imagine what that must have felt like, to lose everything in a place where she has no one. Well, almost no one. She does have her daughters-in-law. But Naomi is now a childless widow. And remember, this isn't 21st century America. This is ancient Israel, the ancient world. If you did not have a husband or a son to provide for you, you were not in a good position she had no immediate financial support. She needed community help. And there was no hope for the future of her family. Her sons and husband were dead. Her family line was going to end with her, or so she thought. Let me read the next couple of verses, verses 6 through 13. After all this death, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And they said to her, "'No, we will return with you to your people.' But Naomi said, "'Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying?' no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So now Naomi's lost all hope for her future, and so she decides to go home. I've lost my husband. I've lost my sons. At least I can go home. And the word there, it says that she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. This word, it's translated differently in chapter 1. It'll be turn, return, go back, bring back, but it's 12 times in this chapter. Clearly, there's an emphasis here. Something is returning. Something is changing in this woman and her family. This is the Old Testament's main word for turning back to God, to embracing God's grace and mercy. She's experienced loss, and now she's ready to return to God. She is returning to the promised land. This whole story is a story about a someone, a family, turning back to God when life is bitter and hard. She does this because she hears the Lord had visited. He had blessed his people by coming to their aid. And Naomi heard about this all the way in Moab. And what she had heard is that the Lord had given them food that word's one we see later in chapter four. And in that passage, it says, so Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. So here we see both the beginning and the end. This is a story of God giving something to his people. He gives food in chapter one. He's giving children in chapter four. It's a whole story surrounded by God's gifts and blessings. And here God is bringing, he's providing food for Bethlehem, the house of food. Crops had been restored. The Lord had visited his people. That's an expression of God blessing those he loves and has a relationship with. In the book of Exodus, it uses that phrase this way. The people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. We even see this phrase in the New Testament. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, will say in Luke chapter 1, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And so they set out to head back to Israel. God is using their move for his purposes. But shortly into their journey, Naomi stops them, And tells her daughters-in-law, the two of you should go back home. Kind of treating them as one group. They're Moabites, they should be in Moab. And this may seem harsh to us, but I think it's more of a tough love conversation. She's releasing her daughters-in-law. They've felt an obligation to care for their mother-in-law. And she's saying, no, my daughters, you can go home to your family. You can get remarried again. You can have a future not tied to me despite the bitterness she has, she asks God to bless and reward them. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, their husbands, and with me. She's asking the Lord to deal kindly and show kindness and love. Even in here, we're seeing that her faith in God is starting to be restored because she's assuming that even if they're all the way in Moab, God will still be able to bless them there. Regardless, she's thanking her daughters-in-law for faithfully loving her and her family. She asks, prays that the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She is really mothering her daughters-in-law. She is seeking new husbands to provide for them. She desires rest, security, stability, and the peace that they can have in raising a family. Now, that's a little different from the world today, and I understand that. But remember, this is the ancient world. And in the ancient world, there wasn't a lot of career options for you if you were a woman. I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's the way it was. The only real option you had was to be married and to have kids, have a family to provide for you. So that's what Naomi's seeking for her daughters-in-law. She's saying, "You, you can go, you can be married, you can still have someone to provide for you. She may also be thinking, these are Moabites. These are enemies of my people. If we go there, they might not be accepted in Israel. The daughters-in-law, they they protest. They say in verse 10, no, we will return with you to their people. They intend to care for their mother-in-law, but Naomi insists. She says it's of no advantage for them to come with her. She has no more sons. It will be easier for them to remarry at home. It says, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. I am too old to have a husband. It says, Even if I had one this night and had sons, would you wait until they were grown? Would you refrain from marrying? No. Ruth and Orpah, they would have to wait a long time if they were going to try to remarry. And Naomi knows that she cannot conceive. This seems to be a a reference to a law known as a leveret marriage. And so God's people at that time would marry within their family. The book of Deuteronomy says, If brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. They didn't want anybody's name to be forgotten. And so if someone died without having children, they wanted that person's name, his legacy, to be remembered. And so this was their marriage tradition. So Naomi is telling her daughters-in-law, I, I know you're aware of this, but I'm not going to have any more kids. I'm really old. So, and even if I could, right now, you wouldn't wait the 15, 20-plus years in order to be married. It's best if you just leave me alone and go home. She's making a pretty strong case for this. And, but Naomi also takes another spin on it. She says at the end of verse 13, is it exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me? She views her situation as harder. It's more severe than that of her daughter's-in-law. It grieves her. It makes her bitter. Naomi interprets this, God's hand must be against me. You don't want anything to do with me because God is against me. He's raised his fist at me. And remember, this is a family that left the promised land. There's probably an element of truth in this. The book of Judges tells us what God was doing to his people during this time. They abandoned the Lord. They served other gods, Baals, Ashtoreth. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. They could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out here's this phrase, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them, they were in terrible distress. As God's people are rejecting him during this time, God's bringing this punishment and judgment not to wear them down and destroy them, but so they'll return and come back to him. We read about this even with people who have a strong relationship with God. In the book of Psalms, we see psalmists crying out to God in the same language. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Or in Psalm 39, the psalmist says, remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of of your hand. And this is unpleasant for us to think about, but the truth is that God takes sin and rebellion against Him very seriously, and He loves us too much to let us go and chase after sin. He will use what He needs to in order to bring us back to Him, inspire us to return to God, re embrace our relationship with Him. And as bitter as Naomi is, that's exactly what she's doing. She's realizing, I have no hope, no future here. I need to go back to God. Now, it's possible that God's action in our life may not come from sin or something wrong that we've done. I need to say that. It seems like that's the case here in Ruth, but we read about other people in the Bible like Job, who God says has not done anything wrong, but he still brings judgment. God, and Job still says that God's hand is on him because he's using Job, growing Job, to know him more. There's something else that happens right after Naomi says this, but we're going to skip ahead a little bit. I'm going to jump to verse 19 when Naomi and Ruth are coming back to Bethlehem. This is what it says. The two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred, excited because of them. The women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest." They arrive back home. The whole town is stirred and excited. This is Naomi. They know her and her family. She's been gone for over 10 years, but they still know this family. It's like here at church when somebody comes back from college or if they'd moved away and come back for a visit. We're all excited. Oh, wow. It's so wonderful to see you again. In this case, though, it's a much worse situation, and they seem to be able to tell. This pleasant woman, Naomi, comes back weary and broken. There's almost a hint that they can't even recognize her. They're like, is is that Naomi, that that wonderful, happy woman? She seems bitter and broken. And that's Naomi's response. She says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. If you're using uh, most Bibles, they'll have a footnote there telling you what those names mean. Naomi means pleasant, Mara means bitter. Think bitter water, something you drink, and oh, oh, I don't want that in my mouth. The almighty God, she says, has dealt bitterly, made life hard, unbearable for her. Her life, her path has been full of bitterness. She has lost everything that she had. And now she views God as her enemy. Job was someone who responded that way. He says, the arrows of the almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And we have to acknowledge Naomi had some reasons for this complaint, but she couldn't see what God was about to do. Instead, she says in 21, she views herself as going away full and coming back empty. And she thinks the Lord has testified his displeasure with her, that there's some sin he is punishing or afflicting. She seems to be saying God has testified. He has said to any witness who cares to look at my life that he has brought calamity, misfortune, and tragedy on me. And we have to acknowledge that's the way it looked. She was impoverished. She didn't have a home. She didn't have anyone to provide for her. She was childless. She was a widow. If you watched our service two weeks ago, and we were still online, I did kind of an introduction to this. We used a dramatic presentation from the ministry, Piercing Word, to read through the passage. I was really moved when I watched that about the actress who played Naomi in this scene. She was so harsh and bitter in her words, her anger against God in that moment. She wasn't responding the way Job did, but with the same emotion. Job would say in Job 1.21, he said, "'Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord.'" The very last verse in the chapter is just a transition. Naomi and Ruth are now in Bethlehem. It's the harvest time around March or April, and it's emphasized Ruth is a Moabite. She is not part of God's people. But there's a hint that God's kindness will be extended to her as well. But let's talk about Naomi for a moment here. 2020 has been an interesting year, but if you think your 2020 has been rough, think of Naomi's 1100 BC. That was a rough year for her. But just the same, I don't want to belittle or or look down on any bitterness that you may be experiencing this year. Many of us probably dealing with frustration of canceled plans that we had. We had all these ideas of things we were going to do this year, and that's not happening now. Perhaps we dealt with bitterness during a period of isolation or separation. Even still probably some of us dealing with that now. Maybe you've had to deal with sickness or a loved one has been sick. Maybe with all the economic uncertainty, you've lost a job or a loved one has lost a job or lost income during this time. That's a bitter struggle to go through. Maybe recently you've lost a friendship or you've lost a relationship. Someone you were close to, you're not talking to anymore. A hope you had for the future in relationship is now broken. Perhaps this year or even relatively recently, you've lost a spouse. And I know that that pain does not go away very easily. And maybe like Naomi, you've lost a child. And I I cannot even imagine the bitterness that that must be, what that must feel like. You must can often feel that God is treating you bitterly and that his hand is against you. But even in this, as all this bitterness here, Naomi is starting to realize, and we will see throughout this book, that God is still with her, that he is still faithful even in these trials. And he will work for his glory. And if we are willing, we can trust him. If we're able to maintain our trust in God through the bitterness of life, it actually emboldens our witness. We're able to declare God's glory and praise even more. Through what we suffered, we can see someone else and say, I went through maybe not the same thing, but something very similar to that. Let me tell you how God was faithful to me in that situation. But I realize being able to say that, that's something that takes time. That's not something right away in the moment when the bitterness is fresh that you're able to do. Naomi's words here are are almost shocking to the ears. She is describing her relationship with God as saying, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, as good Christians, we may think, I don't think we're allowed to say that to God. (laughs) But I, I honestly think this is an honest reflection Of Naomi's heart. This is what she is feeling in that moment, and she's not hiding or pretending. She's saying, Right now, I have a very bitter relationship with God because of what I've suffered. And friends, we don't have to deny that something we're going through is hard. We don't have to pretend that we're okay when we're not okay. We get no bonus points for looking good on the outside. We can call out to God, we can tell Him how we are feeling. We can tell him, God, I'm feeling my life is very bitter right now. We can tell him that. Naomi must have asked questions. She must have wondered what she had done to deserve her suffering. She must have asked, why me? Friends, that's a question we can ask God. I'm not saying that we should stay there. I'm not saying it's okay to believe that your whole life. But we can ask God, say, God, I don't understand what's happening. Help me to understand. And if we are able to call out to God, if we're honest with him, then maybe we'll see him work in our lives. Because we know this suffering that Naomi went through is how God brings her favor, how God brings favor into her life and into her family. There is great joy still to come. The one pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, he puts it this way, the Lord opens Naomi's heart, graciously brings her back through bitter experiences to his blessing. God graciously brings Naomi through bitterness to experience his blessing. And that's the same work that God does in our life if we know him. But then that's the question. How are we to live then? If life is bitter and God's faithful in bitterness, then what are we supposed to do? Well, we see that in the middle of the chapter. We are to faithfully choose God. We are to faithfully choose God. I'm going to read the verses we skipped over, verses 14 through 18. Naomi has told Orpah and Ruth to go home. And verse 14 says, they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she, Naomi, said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. These verses are the center, the turning point of this whole chapter. The beginning and the end talk about Naomi and her bitterness, but in the middle we see Ruth's choice and Ruth's faith. Let's consider where these two women are, Ruth and Orpah. They are young women married. Their husbands have just died. We also have to think that women were married much younger on average in those days, so yes, they've been married for 10 years, but they're probably just in their mid-20s, maybe their late 20s. They have their whole life still ahead of them. Naomi says, you should go back home. You should be remarried. You should have a happy life. Orpah takes her up on this offer. She turns her neck. She kisses Naomi farewell. But Ruth, it says, Ruth clung to her. She clings to Naomi with loyalty and devotion. And now these two women are on separate destinies, separate tracks. This word we read here that she's clinging to Naomi is actually a a phrase we see often in scripture. In the book of Genesis, it's used to describe marriage. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cling to his wife. They shall become one flesh. This is what Ruth is doing. She's saying, no, Naomi, you are my family. I am not going anywhere. As a husband and wife are not supposed to separate, neither will we. She embraced Naomi as her own family. And this is also a phrase used to talk about our relationship with God. The book of Deuteronomy says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and hold fast, cling to him. By his name you shall swear. Both of these women started to follow Naomi home, but only one persisted. The British pastor Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, Orpah is heard of no more. In glorious ease, idolatrous pleasure, her life melts into the gloom of death. But Ruth lives in history and in heaven. For grace has placed her in the noble line when sprung where came the King of Kings. So blessed among women shall those be for Christ's sake can renounce all. Naomi, though, is not willing to take this from Ruth. She encourages Ruth to follow her sister-in-law. She says, you really should go back to your old way of life. You really should return to your people. But Ruth knows that to do that would mean to go back to her old religion, worshiping Chemosh, the head Moabite god, a worship that probably involved many sinful practices, not the least of which would be some form of prostitution. And we may read this and say, that seems kind of weird, pastor, because I can pick where I want to go to church. I can pick who I want to worship. But in these days, especially where you lived determined who you worshiped. You could try to worship your God from your home country, but if you lived in another country, you were expected to participate in the worship of that God. In some places in the world, that's still true even today. There's countries in Europe that are dominated by the Roman Catholic Church, and it's expected if you're a good citizen of this country, you'll be a Roman Catholic. I did a mission trip in Moldova where everyone was expected to be a part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. If you were there, you were Orthodox. It was expected. This is why there's so many conflicts around religion in the Middle East, because if you live in Israel, you're supposed to be a Jew. If you live in any of the countries around there, you're supposed to be Muslim. That's why there's that tension there. To live there is to hold to that faith. That's not how we think about things with our individual rights and freedoms, but that's how society has existed for thousands of years. And so Ruth sees this. If she goes home, she can't really worship the Hebrew Israelite God back in Moab. She could try, but it wouldn't last very long. And so verses 16 and 17 are the climax of the chapter she says do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you where you go i will go where you lodge where you stay where you live i will lodge your people shall be my people your god my god ruth is committed to her new family and to her new faith and she wants naomi to stop pressuring her she has deep affection devotion commitment to naomi and to the god that naomi worships we're seeing signs of a personal conversion here something has changed in ruth she has a new heart a new understanding a new desire for god she believes or she wants to believe in the true god and that's why the key phrase here is your people shall be my people your god my god this is language similar to what we see throughout the old testament We see it twice in the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 24, God says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. They shall be my people. I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. We see it also in chapter 31. This is the covenant, the agreement I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And the result of that will be that I will be their God. They shall be my people. This deep, intimate language of what it means for God to relate to his people, that's what Ruth is saying. I want that kind of connection to God and to his people. So Ruth chooses God and God alone with really no other benefits. Well, there's one other benefit. She gets a new people, a new family, God's people. And when she arrives back in Bethlehem, people recognize this. They applaud her for it. A man Boaz, will learn a lot about next week, he had heard of her conversion and her faithfulness, and he says to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He now says, Ruth, you have chosen to worship, to submit yourself to God, and that is worthy of praise. And it's a reminder to us, one of the great blessings we have coming to know god is to be a part of his people to have a family ruth though she wants to make sure naomi understands she uses a vow language she has an oath inviting punishment may the lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you she is owning the hebrew god yahweh is her own lord And this would have been a great encouragement to Naomi. Think about it. She had just lost her husband, her sons. She's about to lose her home for 10 years, but Ruth is still choosing her. Their relationship is not broken. She has a committed family member. And so when Naomi sees Ruth's determination, she's made her mind strong, her mind set on what she's going to do, then she allows Ruth to accompany her. Now, Naomi doesn't encourage her, because she knows their life will be hard, but maybe she's just left speechless by what Ruth said. So as we talked about Naomi a few minutes ago, I like to talk about Ruth for a minute. I'm a little confused when I read this. Why would Ruth decide to do this? There's no apparent benefit that she's getting to, by choosing to follow Israel's God. Again, Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, it's one thing to love the ways of the Lord when all is fair, and quite another to cleave to them under all discouragements and difficulties. Naomi has just painted a not very appealing picture of God. Come and worship Israel's God. He makes my life bitter and he punishes me all the time. Sign up today. Ruth doesn't, I don't think she has a reason to want to join with that. So what is going on? Why would she decide to worship this God? Did maybe she heard enough to come to realize that maybe the God of my in-laws is the one true God? Had Ruth heard the stories about what this God could do? We don't know, but what we do know is that she was more willing to suffer following the true God than to stay home and live in comfort and ease worshiping a false God. That's a powerful choice because she had to abandon every base of security that there existed in the ancient world. She had to forsake all hope of having a permanent home. She had to give up any dreams she had of marriage and children. As far as she knew, she would be alone with her mother-in-law struggling to make ends meet for the rest of her days. To Naomi, to anyone else looking at it, even to me, Ruth's actions do not make a lot of sense. But she wanted god more she was so in love or at least so interested in this god that she wanted him more than a life of comfort to ruth worshiping the true god was worth the sacrifice she had weighed the cost she said yes you may suffer but you have a relationship with the true god and that's better than getting everything i want and not knowing him friends a life of knowing god is not easy But it is a life that is worth it. Ruth saw that because she knew that this God would be faithful to them. In this chapter, we see extreme brokenness. And and I promise you that we don't hit these depths any other place in this book. It's all up from here. We're at the bottom. We're going to go up from here. But even in this brokenness, this death of this family, God used this horrible circumstance to bring about something amazing. Not only in Ruth's life, and Naomi's, there's, there's joy to come for them. But from the the joy, a new union, a new marriage that Ruth will have, that will lead to a great king, King David, and an even greater king, a savior, Jesus Christ. If this brokenness, this death didn't happen, we don't end up with Jesus. This was God using the pain, the sin, the struggle of the world for something great and good. That's how he Works. He created us to have a good, wonderful relationship. Our sin has ruined and broken that. But this Jesus, this descendant of Ruth, he sent to earth. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. He died on our behalf. And by doing that, we're now able to be restored to God. There can be great joy that we wouldn't have known otherwise through a relationship with him. He died. He rose to new life so that we could have new life, a new relationship with God. And that relationship with God, God and God alone, is worth it. He is worth everything and every sacrifice. If you're a follower of Christ, if you claim to be a Christian today, let me ask you, is God alone your joy? Or is there something else that you hope in? Because he must be first. I think there's also a challenge here with how we share the gospel, or how we think we need to share the gospel. When we're sharing God's truth with someone, we're introducing them to God. We're not painting them a picture of how wonderful their life's going to be. We don't need to do that. Naomi here is probably one of the worst evangelists I've ever seen. God has dealt bitterly with me. You should stay home. And Ruth's like, I'm interested in this. Tell me more. It's a reminder, though, to us that we don't have to be perfect when we share. We can be honest, we can say, I'm really broken. I'm really struggling right now. I'm having a rough time in my life, but let me tell you about something good I know. I know that I that God is with me and I can't see what he's doing right now in my life, but I know that he's doing something. And you know what? He can do something in your life too. There, there's power in sharing that. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have everything put together in order to tell others what God is doing in our lives. By the same token, maybe you're here and you Do not know God. You do not have a relationship with him. You do not know Jesus. Well, friends, let me tell you, God is worth knowing. He is is worth pursuing. He's worth having a relationship with. Ruth is seeing things are bad now, but I think this God is worth it, and that faith will be rewarded. So do you know God? Have you claimed him? Have you claimed his people? Have you made your commitment to God known Like Ruth here, you should bend the knee, declare your allegiance to him because then you'll be able to worship him and he alone is worthy.